Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode begins shortly after 9 a.m. on the Saturday I turned 6. For reasons that will forever remain mysterious, the present from my grandmother was a Lloyd's Portable Transistor Radio, model TR62, made in Taiwan, built with six transistors. This thing was amazing. It revealed a wider world to me. See, I grew up in a small town with three TV stations, one of which was in French, and the only radio I heard was what mom and dad listened to in the kitchen or in the car. But now that I had my own radio, I discovered that there were many, many, many other stations out there. And in the wintertime, when the atmosphere turned into a giant reflector for distant AM signals, I started listening to stations from Minneapolis and Denver and Chicago and St. Louis and many others. At some point after that, I decided that I wanted to be part of this world of news and information and entertainment and music. And to make a long story short, here I am. Now, of course, you may be listening to this as an internet stream or as a podcast, but the original construction of this program is for traditional terrestrial over-the-air FM radio. Now, radio is everywhere. It's the clock radio, the kitchen the stereo in the living room, the car, the office, the gym, the store. In fact, there are so many radios out there that they outnumber people in North America. There are thousands of FM stations and thousands of AM stations. But because radio is so ubiquitous, people don't give it much thought. It's always been there. It's always been free. And it's always been so easy to use. Radio has become so tightly integrated into our lives that we don't notice it perhaps as much as we should. And then there were those who maintained that radio was dead and that nobody listens anymore, which is just rubbish. I could cite you all kinds of statistics to prove that radio is still very popular, very powerful, and very profitable. For example, I can tell you that almost 90% of the population listens to radio over the course of a week. Take my word for that. It's true. But radio is in a period of transition as new technologies come into play. However, the radio industry is very aware of what's going on. And these are all the reasons why I want to talk about radio. Plus, it'll give me an excuse to play some great songs about the medium. Oh, and did I mention that radio has now officially been around for 100 years? Yes. Yes, it has. And here's its story. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Dance, 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 dance 
Joy Division with a recording of their song about radio made for BBC Radio on January 31st, 1979. It was made for John Peel's radio program. And I think it's an appropriate way to start this episode on 100 Years of Radio. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross. Okay, uh, this 100 years is a bit of an approximation, but I will give you a fact. On May 20th, 1920, a radio station in Montreal called CFCF went on the air. CFCF apparently stood for Canada's first, Canada's finest, and it seems to be the first properly programmed radio station in the world. Now, we will come back to that a little later because there's a bit of a fight involved with this. For generations, radio has always been there, and it's been free. You just turn it on, and there it is. Music, news, sports, weather, talk, company, just by flicking a switch. Ever wonder where it came from? Why there's AM and FM? Did you know that the radio that you're listening to right now won't work in Russia or Japan? That uh, your AM car radio is useless in Australia? And that Norway has moved out of AM and FM entirely? Who was the first radio DJ? Why are there radio DJs in the first place? Why do all Canadian radio stations have call letters that begin with the letter C? And what of radio in the future? We're going to talk about all that. And here we go. First of all, how many times have you been told that radio was invented by Guillermo Marconi? Well, he did not. He invented something called the wireless telegraph. He was able to send Morse code signals through the air, but not speech and not music. All he wanted to do was be able to communicate with ships at sea via Morse code. Now, there is a Canadian connection here. On December 12, 1901, Marconi went to St. John's, Newfoundland, where he successfully received a wireless transmission from a station in Portsmouth, England. The transmission was the letter S in Morse code, of course. It just went dit, dit, dit. By 1905, Marconi's wireless telegraph was being used by sailors all over the world, making Marconi a very rich guy. But not everybody can understand Morse code. I mean, can you? The first guy to actually broadcast his voice through the air was a Canadian-born engineer named Reginald Fessenden. While working in his lab near Washington, D.C. in 1900, he apparently was able to transmit and receive something intelligible. The first words ever broadcast over the air were one, two, three, four. Then came December 24th, 1906. That's when Fessenden presided over the first proper radio broadcast from Brant Rock, Massachusetts. It was basically a proof-of-concept thing that he hoped to use to attract financial investors. It began with him playing a bit of classical music from Handel on a phonograph. Fessenden then read something from the Bible and then played Oh Holy Night on his violin. Sailors out in the Atlantic, accustomed to hearing nothing more than dots and dashes of Morse code, were a little freaked out by this. And in the space of those few minutes, Fessenden became the first DJ, the first radio performer, and the first radio announcer. Radio was born. The first people into radio were the geeks, the people who loved to experiment with new ways of transmitting and receiving broadcasts. It was a cult similar to what we saw with the early days of the internet. 
And the technology was really primitive, really unreliable, using things called spark or arc transmitters. They were terrible things, very temperamental, very unreliable. Fortunately, Lee DeForest was one of these early radio geeks. His big invention was the Audion, a vacuum tube that tamed radio waves in such a way that reliable radio broadcasting and receiving was made possible. It's the same device that later became the heart of amplifiers. While trying to improve upon transmitter technology, he experimented with broadcasting the results of yacht races and even oversaw a broadcast of a performance by Enrico Caruso from the Metropolitan Opera House in New York City on January 3, 1910. This is where he performed the music of Calavaria Rusticana and also Pagliacci. Mics were suspended above the stage and a transmitter and antenna was set up in the wings. Uh, it worked but nobody heard it because nobody had a radio yet. If you had an amateur setup, maybe, but there was more static than music. Then there was a guy named Charles Harold. In April 1910, about four months later, he used primitive amateur radio gear to give wireless phonograph concerts in and around San Jose, California. Oh, and I should also point out that in these early, early, early days, all radio was envisioned as being two-way communication. And this is why the U.S. Navy was put in charge of radio in that country. The Navy was also in charge of radio in Canada until 1922, but then it was transferred to the Department of Marine and Fisheries for a while before the country ended up with a dedicated regulator. The fisheries people started issuing licenses to single stations, as well as to the Canadian National Railway, who eventually set up their own radio network. Back then, there were two types of users. There were fans, who were people that broadcast and received radio, Listeners was the derogatory term given to lurkers, people who would just sit and listen instead of contribute. Does that sound familiar? And people were very distrustful of this new technology. Electromagnetic radio waves were affecting the weather, causing droughts, one headline read. Radio waves made by bed springs vibrate so much that I couldn't sleep. I know what you mean. They make my floorboards creak so much that I'm up all night. My child started vomiting when the radio was switched on. Again, you know, with Wi-Fi and 5G. Sounds familiar, right? Americans will tell you that the first radio station was KDKA in Pittsburgh. Canadians have a different story. We say it was XWA in Montreal. Now, as far as anybody can tell, XWA, and the X stood for Experimental, by the way, and run by the Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company of Canada, was the first licensed radio station in all of North America. And it was all totally telegraphic at first. No voice, no music, just dots and dashes. See, nothing could be done to further radio as we know it through the years of the Great War. Wireless was considered to be too much of a military advantage for anybody else to play with. So Canada banned civilian use of radio in August 1914. The U.S. did something similar. But with the end of the war in November 1918, the ban on public wireless was lifted and things began to explode. That was in the U.S., the Canadian ban was removed on May 1st, 1919. Voice transmission tests using DeForest's Audion technology began in the spring of 1919 using a 500-watt transmitter at XWA's facility at 173 William Street in Montreal. After a while, the engineers got bored with talking. They were usually asked to recite the alphabet or count to 100 over and over and over again. So they started getting audio from phonograph records that they grabbed from the nearby Leighton Brothers record store. 
They got on-air credit for this, making Leighton Brothers one of radio's first advertisers. Also that year, a pianist named Willie Eckstein gave a live performance on XWA as part of this testing. The first documented entertainment-based broadcasting for the general public happened on May 20th, 1920. Soprano Dorothy Hutton sang two ballads from the XWA studio in Montreal. KDKA in Pittsburgh didn't go on the air until November 2nd, 1920, six months later. And that's when they broadcast the results of the U.S. presidential election. Then again, a station in Detroit named 8MK did exactly the same thing on the same day. That could have been the first proper radio news program. Sports? The first play-by-play broadcast was in 1921. It was a college game between West Virginia and Pittsburgh. So, XWA and Reginald Pheasanton. That's two points to Canada when it comes to the invention of radio. In these early, early days of radio, things were pretty chaotic. There were no rules or regulations, and the airways were a mess. Amateurs, newspapers, churches, entrepreneurs, they all had their own radio stations doing their own things. And sometimes they had to share frequencies. One station got to broadcast X number of hours per day on a certain frequency, after which they had to relinquish that frequency so that station Y could go on the air. Sometimes this frequency sharing was cooperative, And other times, stations just went at it to the point where no one could receive anything. Eventually, though, governments imposed order. In April 1922, for example, the Canadian government issued 21 licenses to be used for private commercial broadcasting. By the end of the year, there were 58. And within 10 years, there were 77 such stations. In the U.S., 28 stations were up and running by 1922. By 1924, there were more than 1,400, many of which were screwing with each other. So, in 1927, the Federal Radio Commission was formed and started reassigning stations to various specific frequencies and regulated the power of transmitters. Both these moves in Canada and the United States created a proper radio industry that operated in the public interest. Also, once licenses started being granted, various entrepreneurs tried to figure out how to make money from something that appeared out of thin air. Well, here's one way. Companies that made radios then set up radio stations so their customers could listen to their radios. This would be the equivalent of Microsoft creating Internet Explorer and then setting up the Microsoft network. An example would be the Marconi Model C, which was put together in the first purpose-built radio factory in Chelmsford, England. In 1921, during the first year of proper radio broadcasting, one of these things sold for $195. That's the equivalent of $2,500 today. Clearly a luxury for the privilege of receiving not much. Still, about a thousand were sold. All these early radio stations were on the AM band. That's because AM, which stands for amplitude modulation, which describes how frequencies are propagated through the air, is the simplest form of broadcasting technologies. And AM ruled for 50 years, all the way from the 1920s through to the 1970s. Although, uh, I probably don't have to say this, but... AM is very, very analog. You'd have to wait, but you could hear it on the AM radio. AM radio. Yeah, you could hear the music on the AM radio. Everclear, singing about the glories of an old-time AM radio. But frankly, AM radio has lots and lots of problems. 
First and foremost, it doesn't sound great. It just doesn't. The frequency range is limited, which means that music sounds tinny and thin and basically like crap. And while AM signals can travel a long way, especially at night, especially in the winter, they're affected by static. Thunderstorms are the worst. This led to scientists and engineers working through the 1920s to solve what they called the static problem. The guy who came up with the solution was Edwin Howard Armstrong, one of the engineers who helped put KDKA on the air in Pittsburgh. It was while working for RCA, the Radio Corporation of America, that he discovered a new static freeway of broadcasting. He called it Frequency Modulation, or FM for short. It took more than a decade for Armstrong to work out the science and mathematics of FM broadcasting, but by 1933 it was ready. And on June 9, 1934, at exactly 10.23 a.m., the first FM broadcast was made from the top of the Empire State Building. It was an organ recital. And it sounded great, certainly compared to AM radio. FM radio had arrived. That's a 2015 song by Dar Williams called FM Radio. And this seems like a nice place to take a break. Back with more on 100 Years of Radio in just a sec. This is part one of a look back at 100 Years of Radio. And let's pick up the story of Howard Armstrong. Although FM Radio was ready to go by June 1934, it would be decades before it would catch on. That's because RCA had a major financial interest in selling AM radios. They had no intention of screwing up a solid money-making operation. Also, the public didn't seem to be interested in spending more money for an FM radio just because it sounded better. I know that sounds kind of weird, but this is the way it was in the mid-1930s. It was, you know, the Depression, after all. Nobody had any money to spend on more radios. Plus, there was a big stink around patents. Remember Lee DeForest, the inventor of the Audion? He spent 20 years suing Howard Armstrong for stealing his patent to create a vital piece of radio engineering called the superheterodyne. DeForest lost in court time and time and time again, until a Supreme Court judge misunderstood the case and, in a legal fluke, awarded the case to DeForest. So, in a roundabout way, this allowed RCA to control the patents for FM broadcasting. RCA was also spending a lot of money on developing this new thing called television, and because RCA controlled the patents on FM and had this interest of suppressing it, they stalled things both at the corporate level and in the courts in order to sell more AM radios and to spend more money developing TV. So although Armstrong's new method of radio broadcasting was way better in every imaginable way, money and ego and greed and TV held FM back. And in the end, this destroyed Howard Armstrong. On February 1st, 1954... Broken and depressed, Howard dressed in his best suit and overcoat, put on his hat and gloves, and jumped from his 13th floor window of his apartment. And the radio was in the hands of such a lot of fools trying to anesthetize the way that you feel. Radio is a sound salvation. Radio is cleaning up the nation. At this moment, an untold amount of electromagnetic radiation is going through your body. Most of these frequencies are empty, which is to say they aren't carrying any kind of information. Others are filled with video, Wi-Fi, mobile phones, satellite signals, and anything else that can be zipped from place to place wirelessly. 
AM radio, which you'll remember is short for amplitude modulation, is also known as medium wave, which is why some radios are marked with MW as well as or in place of AM. In North America, the AM radio band starts at 520 kilohertz and goes as high as 1710 kilohertz. Stations are spaced 10 kilohertz apart. However, in other parts of the world, they're spaced 9 kilohertz from each other. This is where we need to talk about the International Telecommunication Union. This is an agency of the United Nations that deals with coordinating international broadcast regulations. It's been around since, wait for it, 1865. Dates all the way back to the days of the telegraph. The world of broadcast radio is divided into three regions. Europe is region one. North and South America, with the exception of some Caribbean countries, make up region two and the Middle East, South Asia, China, Japan, Southeast Asia, Australia, and New Zealand are Region 3. In Regions 1 and 3, AM stations are spaced 9 kilohertz apart, starting at 531 kilohertz. So that means if you have a digital radio, you might not be able to receive AM radio in most of the world because it automatically locks in on the 10s, 530, 540, 550, 560, and so on. You can't properly tune in a station at, say, 888 kilohertz. FM is different. It's in the VHF part of the spectrum, just above where we used to find Channel 6 on television. In North America, FM starts at 87.9 megahertz and goes up to 107.9. After that, we get into air traffic control frequencies. But not all FM is the same. Our dial goes 87.9, 88.1, 88.3, 88.5, and so on. In the UK and most of Europe, even numbers are used, so it's 88.0, 88.2, 88.4. In Italy, you can have a station at 88.25, and there are even weirder ways of dividing up the band in other countries. And it gets even more strange. In some parts of what used to be the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, FM runs from 65 to 74 megahertz, which means none of our radios will work. Same thing in Japan, where FM runs from 76 to 90 megahertz. Even our FM used to be different. Back in 1939, during the days Edwin Howard Armstrong was fighting with Lee DeForest and RCA, all FM stations in North America were slotted between 42 and 50 megahertz. But then in the middle 40s, several broadcasting companies urged the U.S. government to move FM into its current spot. That move came on January 15, 1945, which meant that all FM radios sold up to that point were completely useless. While we're still on the technical side of things, let's talk about call letters. These are the three and four letter call signs assigned to a licensed radio station. You can think of them as the station's license plate. Call letters are regulated by governments and international treaties. In Canada, the first letter of all radio stations must be C. The only exceptions are to be found in Newfoundland, where some older ones begin with V, and that's because they were around when Newfoundland wasn't part of Confederation and had their own call signs. There's a little bit of flexibility when it comes to the second letter. It has to be F, H, I, J, or K. So all stations in Canada must begin either CF, CH, CI, CJ, or CK. No exceptions, except in Newfoundland, of course. 
And all radio stations in Canada must have four letters in their call signs. The only exceptions are the oldest radio stations. When they were founded in the 1920s or early 30s, they had signs with three letters, and there are still a few of those, CKX and Brandon, for example. Over in the U.S., they have their own rules. If the station is east of the Mississippi, the first letter of the call sign has to be W. If it's west, it has to be K. Now, there are some exceptions because they were either grandfathered in when the new rules came into B, or because the Mississippi isn't really a good dividing line. Minnesota would be a very good example because that's where the Mississippi begins and just it gets weird. And this gives me an excuse to play this song. Up until 1973, the only legal radio broadcasting in the UK came from the publicly funded BBC. There was no private radio in the UK until 73. That changed on October 16th, 1973, when a station called Capital FM signed out at 95.8 FM and 557 AM. And for years, Capital FM kept things very, very safe. Just mass appeal, mainstream pop music. But then punk broke. The BBC wouldn't touch it, so attention turned to Capital Radio. But they wouldn't touch that music either, which greatly annoyed The Clash, who couldn't get airplay anywhere. So they wrote this song, in which they expressed their displeasure. From April 1977, this is The Clash with Capital Radio. Clash, who were so upset at one particular British radio station that they wrote a song about it. More on 100 Years of Radio, coming up. Radio has been around for 100 years now, so we're taking a look at the history of the whole thing. And this would be a good time to talk about the people you hear on the radio, the so-called disc jockey. Now, strictly speaking, there isn't any such thing as a radio disc jockey anymore, because virtually all the music you hear from the radio is played from some kind of hard disk playback system. Music is delivered to the radio station via secure digital downloads, and from there the songs are transferred right to a server. There are no disks, unless you count the platters inside the hard drives. But back in the day, records and CDs ruled. And this brings us to another piece of Canadian radio history. The first ever proper radio DJ was born in Canada. But before we get to him... This requires some setup. In the early days, most everything you heard come out of the speakers was live. All the music was from live bands. All the news was read live. And all the drama and comedy shows were performed live. And it had to be. It wasn't until after World War II that we got magnetic recording tape, which made pre-recording things practical and easy. Until then, making pre-recorded radio programs was, was complicated and the technology wasn't very good. But there was also the issue of the musicians' unions. They did not want records being played over the radio. That, they said, threatened to put them out of work. This fight carried on until the 1940s, when, in America, the musicians' union went on strike. No musician could play live on the radio during that time. And this was a mess that took several years to sort out. Some recorded music, gramophone records mostly, was used on licensed radio stations as early as 1926 but only as a last-case scenario filler. Everything else had to be live. That was the rule. But in 1932, a Canadian-born announcer named L. Jarvis convinced his boss at an L.A. radio station to let him create a show that involved nothing more than him playing records and talking between songs. 
Then, in 1935, a New York announcer named Martin Block started something called Make Believe Ballroom. Each show was divided into segments of 15 minutes. For that time, a performer was featured on an imaginary revolving stage. Block would talk about them as if they were actually there, but they weren't. He, he was just playing records. So where did the phrase disc jockey come from in the first place? That's unknown. But the first time the phrase first appeared in print was July 23, 1941, in Variety, the showbiz paper. By the 1950s, thousands of people were working in the business, all calling themselves disc jockeys. Radio became very, very, very big during the Depression. Once you acquired radio, it was cheap entertainment. National networks were established with all manner of news and entertainment. The biggest showbiz stars in the world were radio performers, singers, band leaders, comedians. There were quiz shows, soap opera performers. When World War II happened, radio was the way people heard what was happening. Nine out of ten people had a radio. Newspapers weren't really happy about this, especially when some stations started reading stories from the paper. I mean, why buy a paper when you could just turn on the radio and hear the news for free? For a while, papers banned stations from reading their stories on the air until after the papers hit the streets. This tension led to the creation of news organizations like the Associated Press and radio stations setting up their own in-house newsrooms. Those started popping up in the 1930s. The rock and roll DJ was born in the 1950s in Nashville, Memphis, and Cleveland. All these cities had stations with powerful AM transmitters with signals that could reach dozens of states all the way up into Canada. They also devoted portions of their broadcast day to playing what was called race records. These were rhythm and blues records by black artists. Exciting new music that was devoured by white kids looking for something forbidden, or at the very least something that their parents found awful. There was Dewey Phillips at WHBQ and WDIA in Memphis. Gene Nobles was at WLAC in Nashville. And of course, there was Alan Freed, first from WJW in Cleveland and then WINS in New York. These guys, and they were almost exclusively guys, were a new breed of entertainer and cultural curator. They told the kids what was good, what was hot, how to talk, how to dress, what records to buy, what shows to go see. They were the spreaders of this new thing called rock and roll. The Ramones with Do You Remember Rock and Roll Radio? On part two of 100 Years of Radio, we'll look at how the new medium became an essential part of this thing called rock and roll. We'll also talk about the arrival of television, the rise of FM, the introduction of satellite radio, the history of the radio commercial, the appearance of the internet, digital audio broadcasting, HD radio, and so much more. Meanwhile, you can catch up on hundreds of ongoing History of New Music podcasts. You can go to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and every other podcast platform in the known universe. They're all free, of course. Please rate and recommend if you can. And if you have any recommendations for future program topics, send them right to me through alan at alancross.ca. If you want playlists for any of these shows, best go to my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. Just enter Ongoing History in the search field and watch what pops up. I'm also on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even LinkedIn. Failing all that, we will talk next time right here. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. 
I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 